I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Brooke Masters. This week, we discuss the proposals made by the Independent Commission on Banking chaired by John Vickers, which will be endorsed by the government later today. We also take a look at the series of long-running cases against former members of UBS's so-called Asia 2 Wealth Management Desk and what the problems mean for the embattled Swiss group. Seeing this sort of massive scale of problems that were in that division only adds the feeling about UBS that it's just not a well-run bank. We also will be looking at Antonio Horta Osorio's return to Lloyd's Banking Group and what that means for that UK largely state-owned bank. The big concern, I think, still is whether he'll be able to change the way he does the role. Joining me this week is the FT's retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, and investment banking correspondent, Megan Murphy. Let's start with Vickers. The British government is going to be issuing its response to Sir John Vickers' report. Despite concerns that implementation of the report might be impeded by EU law, Brussels officials have said they won't stand in the way. Now we get to see what exactly is going to happen. Charlene, why don't you tell us what we think we're getting today? Well, I don't think the report today is going to digress greatly from the actual Vickers recommendations that came out in mid-September. That was a very full package of measures aimed at two things, really. First of all, the financial stability aspect, which was centred around the main uh, Vickers recommendation to ring fence banks' retail operations, and that means sort of effectively build a wall around them, make them hold higher levels of capital so they're protected from the riskier investment banking operations. Now, that the government has been very clear all along that it's going to press ahead with that. It thinks that's a good idea. So, you know, today will just be a formality, really, to say, right, this is what we're going to do and how exactly we're going to implement that. But again, Vickers sort of laid out very clearly their view on how long banks should be given to adapt to the new measures. You know, that's until 2019. We don't think the government's going to stray from that very significantly. So I think, you know, Vince Cable yesterday said they were going to press ahead with the recommendations in full. And, you know, there's a real sense that some of the areas where banks have been lobbying to get them watered down, you know, they're not going to make huge concessions there to the banks. Megan, do we have a sense of what the banks think? I think it's interesting to put this into context of the larger European debate and what happened last week with David Cameron's veto at the EU summit. I mean, when we think about Vickers, we frequently put it in such a UK perspective because it is specific to the UK banking groups and because the recommendations and what the UK is going to do with its large banking groups is very different than what's going on in Europe and particularly in the US. And there are some differences there. But what's interesting, I think, is when you look at sort of the financial services sector and how the banks have pushed back, there's no question that prior to the report being released, we had some major mobilization by the banks against this sort of core ring fencing proposal to insulate UK retail from so-called riskier, use the word casino, use any of the words that the politicians have used. So there was quite mobilization against that. One, because people just aren't sure how much safer it makes the system. And two, there's been always the argument that it puts UK banks at competitive disadvantage owing to the fact that no other regimes are pursuing a similar system. I don't think there's been as much lobbying in this intervening period. One, because as Charlene quite ably pointed out, I mean, people have embraced for this. The timing of this is all a bit curious. You know, it's December 19th. A lot of bankers have left. We're not expecting any radical departure from what has already been announced. And in fact, when it was announced, the government quite rightly was quite keen to sort of give a very clear steer about 
timetable for implementation, as Charlene said, by 2019 in line with the global Basel reforms and to sort of give clarity to the market. So the statement is, the timing is curious. I'll be shocked if there's some sort of radical departure from Vickers. That being said, I'd only like to say that I think there is still some major difference about the substance of Vickers and whether or not it does actually will make, you know, a safer system. I think that debate continues to rage on. It's an argument the banks have lost. And also, while we, well, we're uh, sure that we won't see the sort of radical departure, I think there will be some tinkering around the edges, particularly some softening of this, one of the key proposals to make banks hold a lot more, particularly this recommendation to make banks hold considerably more loss-absorbing debt. Now, that's been one point that banks have lobbied really hard uh, since September to get that watered down, particularly HSBC and Standard Chartered, who would be most severely affected by this. You know, HSBC has used some very strong language about that point, saying that, you know, if if the proposal did come in to effect in the way Vickers recommended it, you know, it may be too high for them to stay in the UK. So clearly, I think the government has taken that on board. What it could do in that area is say, well, this uh, more stringent capital requirement will only apply to their UK business. And for HSBC, that would be a, a huge difference, given that the vast majority of their business is conducted elsewhere in the world. That makes sense. And it would also, of course, reduce the competitive pressures outside the UK. Megan, should we move on to UBS? Why don't you tell us about all the excitement over there? Now, this is a this is a very interesting saga. It's been a long story. My colleague Michael Peel and I first reported on this case in November 2009. Basically, what it involves is allegations that senior, very senior former executives in UBS's UK-based wealth management arm were involved and complicit in helping Anil Ambani, who's one of India's, India's biggest industrialists, the chairman of the Reliance Group of company, which spans everything from communications to entertainment to you know variety of different interests. They were involved in helping him to set up an offshore vehicle that he could use to invest into Indian domestic stocks. Now, under Indian law, it's prohibited for Indian nationals to go through foreign institutional investors like a UBS to invest in Indian domestic stocks. This is quite a clear, you know, it's sort of been the case for a long time, quite a clear thing. And what has emerged last week is this vehicle was set up by former UBS executives, and it actually attracted two $250 million worth of investment from three of, of Mr. Ambani's reliance companies. Now, for UBS, their constant sort of cry during this, in, you know, last week has been that this is all in the past, that these problems in UK wealth management have been corrected and remediated, that they've paid an $8 million fine to the UK's Financial Services Authority over these incidents. The senior people have all left, that this is like the tail end of this saga. But given the bank's current other compliance woes, this week, um, a former low-level trader in their investment bank, Kweku Adeboli, will be potentially pleading to charges that he, he engaged in a $2.3 billion alleged rogue trade fraud. The series of compliance woes at UBS ticks over sort of year after year after year. And I think looking backwards at this case and seeing this sort of massive scale of problems that were in that division only adds the feeling about UBS that it's just not a well-run bank when it comes to compliance, that it has a culture where people are encouraged to sort of take risk and, and maximize profits at the expense of sort of strict adherence to compliance procedures. Do you buy the argument that things have changed? I think certainly there have been such sweeping efforts to root out root out sort of wrongdoing to sort of look at developing a foster based on UBS. I think things have gotten so bad that there's only one way up for UBS. The problem is, is that this is a bank that lost so many people during the crisis where it nearly collapsed that had to bring a lot of people back in um, in the investment bank. On the wealth management side, they've always been quite aggressive. You know, they've got a huge franchise there. It is this, definitely the crown jewel of that bank. But at the same time, this environment creates pressure on people to deliver. And, you know, in this certain case, we've had evidence 
evidence submitted to the tribunal that actually shows a very senior UBS executive actually appearing to suggest to to more junior colleagues saying, look, Mr. Ambani has, he is a very important client to the bank, and therefore you may need to consider whether breaking the rules in this case may be something we want to do. And that type of culture doesn't go away overnight. Interesting. Should we turn to the other bank under discussion this week, which is also facing a bit of change? We learned this week that Lloyd's Bank Group is getting back their chief executive. So what's up with that, Charlene? Yes, we heard this news uh, midway through last week. We were kind of expecting that Lloyds was going to say something uh, because they've maintained all along, you know, ever since Antonio Ortoasario, their chief executive, disappeared at the beginning of November, taking off a period of medical leave after suffering from exhaustion. You know, the bank had been very clear that he was going to come back. At first, you know, people outside the bank, investors, people within the bank, some of his most senior colleagues, really doubted whether he would be able to return. But I think as the weeks went on and Lloyds could have maintained its stance that he would be coming back uh, early January, there was a growing sense that he would be able to make his comeback. And I think it's a hugely important move for the bank. We saw him last week. He looked fully recovered. He looked good. He has prioritised rebuilding his investor relations as one of his key things for 2012. He obviously needs to do that. Um, Investors were still very sceptical, really, about whether he can be the man to steer Lloyd's through its um, multiple challenges that it's going to face next year. But he seemed very chipper and, you know, willing to take that challenge on. The big concern, I think, still is whether he'll be able to change the way he does the role. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of comments around, you know, his character, his kind of tendency to sort of micromanage, to get involved in the more sort of trivial aspects of running the bank. And he's really needs to let that go and focus on leadership. And he said that he will try and do that. He'll try and strengthen his top team at the bank as a way to sort of offload some of that responsibility. But knowing him and his, you know, his way and his manner, it's quite difficult to change that and have the self discipline discipline to kind of to do the job differently so he doesn't have a relapse. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the best story going in the city, actually. I mean, it's, it's just been fascinating. And I think one just interesting bit of detail for listeners, regular listeners to the podcast, is that when Bischoff, the chairman of Lloyd's, was out actually doing a round in the city to both shareholders and to media, and um, in retrospect now, looks about a week before the announcement, only about a week before the announcement went out, and looks in retrospect now like he was almost trying to gauge sentiment among how it would be received in the media, how it would be received among shareholders if he came back. I would definitely say that even up to 10 days or a week before he came back, the odds were betting against his return and that other options. And so for me, at least, it was a little bit of surprise, the rapidity at which they moved. And my big question and concern is always just if anything happens again. Obviously, Wynn has said he would step down and you have to wonder how shareholders are feeling. Sort of, they're going to have to sweat it and see, it looks like. But credit to Lloyd's for taking a really a bold decision and backing their man. And we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, I think if he had any kind of relapse, it would be an absolute disaster for the bank and they're aware of that like you say the chairman's already said that his job's on the line in case that happens they are looking to strengthen the board to bring in some people I mean we don't expect Sir Wynne Bischoff to be at the the chairman of that bank for a huge amount more time you know he is approaching 70 he's been you know he took that job he always when Lloyd's encountered all its problems in the financial crisis it was never going to be a very long-term thing he'll have to ride it out a little bit longer just to check that Antonio's um, sort of back on track but if there were any signs that he was succumbing to exhaustion again or you know struggling to sleep again I think the bank would be in real problems because at the moment there's just no alternative chief executive there so well it'll be interesting to watch as they not only go look for a better backup team but also you know confront all the troubles that we're expecting in 
the new year as the Eurozone does or does not break up. That's it for this week. All that's left is to thank Charlene and Megan for their contributions and you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at www.ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Amy Tang. Till the new year, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.